As you can probably tell, visiting galleries and museums is one of my absolute favourite activities. And our new sponsor, the National Art Pass, makes that a whole lot easier, smoother and cheaper for us art lovers and gallery goers. Not only does the National Art Pass grant you free entry to over 240 museums, galleries and historic houses across the UK, such as Kensington Palace, Cardiff Castle and the Horniman Museum, it also gives 50% off major exhibitions at places such as the British Museum, Tate, v National Gallery, National Portrait Gallery and so many more. And we all know that they have some pretty good upcoming and current exhibitions, from Dora Maar at the Tate Modern to Elizabeth Payton at the National Portrait Gallery. Membership is just £70 for an entire year, and for those under 30, it's a mere £45. And for lucky Great Women Artists listeners, you can also receive an exclusive tote bag designed by Malika Fev when you buy a National Art Pass by entering the code GREAT at checkout. Thanks to our sponsor, the National Art Pass, for making this podcast possible. Hello everyone, and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from The Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators, or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most to them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities. So you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I'm so excited to say that my guest today is the brilliant Aisha Marez. Currently a curator at Tate Britain in British Contemporary Art, Aisha has curated a number of highly critically acclaimed exhibitions, including the staggering Don McCullen at Tate Britain this year, which tours to Tate Liverpool in June 2020, Isaac Julian's Looking for Langston, which is currently on view at Tate Britain, and next May, Aisha is working on a major exhibition of the great British painter Lynette Yadam Boache. But more importantly, and the reason why you are all tuning in today, is because Aisha also curated really one of the best shows I've ever seen, Lisa Bryce, as part of Art Now at Tate Britain last May, by the South African-born artist who currently has an exhibition on right now at Stephen Friedman Gallery, and really is one of the greatest artists working right now, and whose work, as you can probably tell, just blows my mind. Welcome, Aisha. How are you doing today? Very well, thank you. Aisha, I have been so excited about this episode for so long, as Lisa's work is something that I think resonates with everyone. It's vibrant, beautiful, seductive, and of course, there's so much more to it than meets the surface, which we will get into later. But I guess what struck me most about when I first saw her work was how I've never really seen women be betrayed like this before. And also, I've never seen such a kind of unique language of figurative painting. For our listeners, could you just kind of describe the aesthetic of Lisa Bryce's work? Of course. So Lisa Bryce, as you say, is a figurative painter. And when we sort of started working together um, for the Art Now exhibition that she did for us, we had long conversations in the build-up to it. And we talked about the fact that she noticed, looking through art history, that it's significant that through the history of figuration, women are painted by men, by white men, 
for an audience of predominantly white men. And she was interested in the fact that this is really the only way in which you encounter women in the canon of Western art history. And she takes characters from the canon of Western art history or from Instagram or from magazines, Playboy, all sorts of different places. And she takes them from the situations which they've been placed into, where they might be passive, um, they might be existing for the pleasure of others rather than for themselves. And she recasts them in new situations. She kind of makes these composite characters that she works through and puts together into these compositions where they have a real sense of autonomy. So I mentioned earlier that first feeling of seeing Lisa's show that you curated and I had it again with visiting the Stephen Friedman Gallery show and I guess the best way I can describe seeing Lisa's work was completely mesmeric. Um, Where did you discover Lisa's work and what was your kind of initial reaction to it? I think the first time I saw Lisa's work was in the exhibition at Camden Art Centre that Dora Olowu curated. Fantastic show. um, Making and Unmaking. And one of the works in the exhibition at Take Britain was the work that was in that particular show. And then I kind of was following her. And I think, like you say, it was very refreshing. Yeah. The the paintings are so multi-layered. There's so much to them. Going back to see the Stephen Friedman exhibition today, it's like going back into a room of old friends. There are these characters, this kind of repetition is something that happens in her work a lot. Yeah. She worked for a printmaker when she was in South Africa and also worked on storyboards kind of to um, earn some extra cash when she was starting out. And there is this kind of sense of like filmic moments. Yeah. There are these... But they seem really cinematic, actually. Exactly. The characters are pausing. Yeah. Um, Um, like having a cigarette break in between takes, things like that. Mm. And I think as well as them being refreshing, it's the multi-layered nature of her work that really got me going. Absolutely. I mean, I've revisited that Stephen Friedman gallery so many times and each time I'm discovering a new character or a new cat or a new floor or something that's in it. So Lisa's work kind of consists of these large scale, almost Renaissance-like, kind of very art historical style scenes of women in domestic or private spaces. And what I find interesting, and I touched on this earlier, was actually how I've never seen women be portrayed like this in our history they seem completely free of what they want to do in this kind of almost oasis like um, environment where they can act as they want to do how women kind of brazenly present themselves to no one but they but themselves and they are simultaneously kind of in your face as well as self-contained so talk to me about the figures who are these women who are in her work the women in the work are drawn from lots and lots of different sources they are not necessarily always women. Lisa talks about the mood of her work as being feminine rather than specifically female. There's lots of ambiguity to her work. Um, Her paintings kind of refuse to be categorised. Like you say, they have this sense of feeling like kind of history painting yeah I think it's the scale of them as well the scale of them but then at the same time borrowing all of these painterly references from different points in art history they kind of refuse to be tied to a specific time or place but they're drawn together in these compositions that are entirely fictitious that she makes up that she creates these conversations or moments for these women to be in dialogue but crucially not for us it's not for the viewer it's something that's going on between them and do you think this is actually quite like a sort of new concept in a way do you think that women have been kind of portrayed like this in art history i think they have but crucially i think 
when they have, it's by themselves. There's a new show at Stephen Friedman, there's a real step forward and a development, I think, of the way in which she's looking at women and the way in which women are looking at themselves. So one of the works in the exhibition is a painting of a woman. She's nude, she's wearing stockings, and she's looking at herself in a mirror. Her head is turned away from the viewer, but the eyes of the reflection stare out. There are these kind of empty white eyes, kind of a bit like Modigliani used mm, to yeah. used to say that he wouldn't paint the eyes of his sitters until he knew them. Um, and I'm not sure whether that's the specific reference that she's calling into mind, but there's this kind of empty, bold stare out. Do you think we're supposed to kind of know who these figures are? Because obviously in, for example, Between This and That, which was in your, at your show at Tay Britain, um, you know, she's actually even referencing people like Gertrude Stein in the corner. She's paying homage to Manny's Olympia. Are we supposed to kind of know these references when we look at them? It's definitely not like a kind of spot the difference yeah. situation, but I think there is something quite kind of canny yeah. about the way that she picks out these little bits and borrows them from these male painters and takes them in and appropriates them. And I think that just as a woman, the thing isn't necessarily whether or not the viewer is going to recognize the shoe or the cat or the pose I think it's more actually just that she's creating a shift in reauthoring a painting by a man as a woman and when did she start kind of doing this has she always been doing figurative painting was she always borrowing art historical references or because I know you mentioned earlier that she derived images from Playboy I mean that's a sort of seriously male gaze um, magazine she has had quite a diverse practice actually at the beginning of her career she was making work in denim work with found objects and I I think that the work that she's making at the moment is a kind of summation of all of these different elements of her practice. She's really interested in interiors and, mm. and the work that she makes at the moment, um, these paintings that we're talking about specifically, most of them are 2D paintings, but actually with the Stephen Friedman show, there are these screens mm, as well. Yeah. And I think that this exhibition, this step forwards, looking at the artist as model and looking at things like these 3D objects, there's this kind of like the way in which her paintings refuse to be categorized it's like adding another layer of taking away an easy reading so using the color blue yeah she uses the color blue obviously the color blue has amazing number of art historical significances and you think about Eve Klein using female paintbrushes yeah. and trademarking his own paint color, Picasso's blue period, mm. Matisse. But Lisa Bryce, she also uses it to interrupt an easy reading of the subject's ethnicity. But she's thinking about her deep ties to Trinidad. Yeah. And this particular blue that you quite often see, she uses sort of different shades of it, but there's really like a strong kind of cobalt blue that's yeah. usually the blue that you see. At carnival time in Trinidad, there's a moment when people have this kind of huge street party which marks the beginning of carnival and it's called Juvert. Yeah. And as part of that, the normally relatively conservative residents of Trinidad cover themselves in mud or blue paint, and they're liberated from a sense of the limitations of their own character. And she talks about how, in doing so, there's this transformation that people feel during Juvet, and it's linked to a specific character in Trinidad called the Blue Devil. Yeah, so I'm really intrigued about how she uses these colours, because her work is kind of very distinctively blue, or has these kind of iconic pinks. You mentioned earlier, you know, they are these kind of private spaces, but they're also 
not private spaces. And I kind of feel like she's constantly going between kind of interior, exterior, naked, clothed. You know, there seems to be a kind of really transitional moment. Do you think that colour kind of emphasises that ambiguity? Definitely. And when we first started talking about the colour blue, she first started looking at the colour blue in the effort to recreate the blue of a neon sign at night. Oh, wow. Um, And it's calling into mind this idea of that transitional moment when the sky has that really particular blue, you know, like in that Magritte painting when you can't work out whether it's day or night. Yeah. Um, Lots of her work and lots of her characters exist in liminal spaces. You aren't sure whether you're inside or outside. There are grills, there are windows, there are reflections. Mm. You're kind of getting these glimpses into maybe areas that you shouldn't be seeing. The fact that the, the women are quite often undressed, it makes you very aware of your position as an outsider as a voyeur but that blue that idea of the liminal and of the transitional she's trying to capture this blue of what she calls the gloaming hour Mm. it's this kind of moment when day becomes night when things change so the blue is useful in conveying the sense of liminality. But also she's kind of going back to that idea of the art historical figures. She's also fusing figures from different generations and different paintings as well. And this obviously, you know, completely plays with the idea of the kind of gender dynamics and everything. What do you think she's trying to say about women then and women now? Well, I think that there are lots of things that haven't changed. Yeah, The male gaze is still well and truly in existence and the violence of the male gaze. There was a particular painting that she did for um, the Art Now where we asked her to look at the collection and respond to the collection. So she made paintings around Millet's Ophelia and also around Parting at Morning by William Rothenstein. Are these works on the Tate Britain collection? They're works on okay. the Tate Britain collection and they're usually on display. I don't want to say they are in case everybody rushes to take to see them <laughs> but um the particular one parting at morning i think what i was saying about the violence of the male gaze her work is called parting at dusk okay. and the original painting is a similar size to the one that she made for our exhibition it's a woman who is looking destitute she's looking at the artist with these kind of doleful eyes she's looking at with this very sad look her skin is kind of she doesn't look very healthy and actually the original sitter had gone to William Rothenstein to sell a painting because she needed the cash Mm. and he had said something which I think is real evidence of the violence of the male gaze the original model, she remains nameless as far as we can see, but um, in, in any of the scholarship around the painting, but she brought him two paintings to sell. And he wrote in his diary, in appearance, this model recalled a phrase of Henry James, the wanton was not without a certain cadaverous beauty. I made several pastels of her. So this woman had come to him destitute saying, I'm here, let me, would you like to buy these paintings? And he'd kind of taken that moment and asked her to sit for him and using this horrible language, the way in which he views her as really grim. Mm. And in the corner of the painting, there's an inscription of a poem by Robert Browning. And the poem has the same title, Parting at Morning. There's this kind of inference that she's spent the night with somebody and this is her leaving dishevelled and not looking very happy. But in the poem, they say, Round the cliff on a sudden came the sea and the sun looked over the mountain's rim and straight was the path of gold for him and the need of a world of men for me. And that's forever inscribed in the corner of this painting. So she's bound forever as this nameless woman who will never, nobody knows who she was, what her story was she's just there existing forever in this frame bound to this kind of need of the world of men so Lisa takes this character and she recasts her in the painting the composition is very similar 
but she has made very subtle shifts and what you were saying earlier about this idea of repetition mm. the fact that she brings back these characters again and again similar compositions she's interested in the subtle shifts that occur when you repaint something you know even if it's the same composition something very simple can completely alter the mood of the painting or of the feeling of the character and she's made very few changes but she's given the woman a cigarette yeah and she's staring out maybe it's a post-coital cigarette but it's none of your business whether yeah. it is or not <laughs> and she's not looking out with these kind of sad appealing eyes she's looking at you like why are you bothering me totally I mean this is I think why I just love Lisa Rice's work so much as well because every time I see it there are these angles that you don't get at first sort of at first hand and then you look into them and I love the fact like it makes me genuinely happy that she's re-immortalizing this woman yeah who whatever she's giving she's her like, a second go and completely. on her own terms and it's not for any of us and she doesn't care what we think and maybe she is leaving somebody's house in the morning but she probably had a great time and she's having a <laughs> cigarette and it's fine absolutely but again like really kind of modernizing these women they're in their own place they're you know allowed to do what they want to do and they're so seductive at the same time as mm. well and you, there's kind of like this haze they, they feel hot as well her work I don't, I don't know what it is maybe it's the kind of intensity and saturation of the blues and the reds but I'm intrigued about these motifs again the idea of repetition why they keep coming up the cats the cigarette this kind of transitional door frame and everything can you talk a bit about why she likes to include cats and cigarettes so again, thinking about the storyboarding that she did early on in her career, mm. she quite often has these props. Mm. So there will be a cigarette, I think just as a kind of a symbol of a strong woman just sitting there and having a cigarette, yeah. you know, it's kind of slightly punk just to kind of, you know, do whatever you want, do something that's not very good for you, Absolutely. just go for it. <laughs> Um, but things like the beer bottles, for example, there are things drawn, like I said, not just from art history, but also from different areas of her life. So Lisa was born in South Africa mm -hmm. and spent her formative years there during the apartheid. And then um, in the 90s, came to London to do um, a residency at Gasworks. And around the same time, she started going back and forth to Trinidad. And while she was there, she kind of became part of the artistic community. So people like Peter Doig Chrysophili, another artist called Ember. He passed away a few years ago, but he was a real influence on Peter Doig and Chrysophili and Lisa Bryson. And he was this amazing self-taught artist who had this kind of, you know, he's this wise sage that they all went to for advice. And he was really influential to all of them. So he's, wow. he's this kind of amazing character. And I think that that whole world in Trinidad was just really conducive to art, evidently, because there totally. are so many artists who have come out of there. It must be something about the place, the fact that it's a hot place. I think that there are elements of South Africa, but also really strong elements of Trinidad. So like you were saying earlier with the warm weather, you have kind of Trinidadian plastic curtains. Um, the beer that the women drink in lots of the paintings is stag beer, which in Trinidad is like the man's beer. Mm. Lots of the paintings have stag beer signs in the background or kind of advertising. And there's a particular painting, which is kind of mostly red. No bear back after Ember. There you are. Yeah. And Ember is kind of in that. Well, as I said before, the characters are drawn from lots of different people. They don't yeah. they present as female or feminine, but they might be drawn from the spirit or the mood of somebody else that she's known. And I think that particular painting, you've got people drinking stag beer in a kind of indoor, outdoor, Trinidadian, British, strange 
amalgam of all of these different influences, different places that she's been to and that have influenced her. I mean, I love that work, um, No Bareback After Ember, because you do really get a sense that you are a total voyeur into this really unknown world. I mean, it's it's worlds away from living in London and there's this really soft touch. And, and again, the heat, I think that's why, again, I, I'm always drawn to it. And the smoke of the cigarettes um, outside, it almost feels like there's some kind of hazy music or something um, going in the background. So it's so interesting to kind of hear of these kind of different influences that are happening. So also what I love about her work again with um, reclaiming these um, women from history, again, it's almost these male spaces as well, like using bars, using this stag beer that is kind of traditionally a male thing. So she's completely reclaiming every aspect of the world in a way, making it feminine. She's reforming what it might be to be ladylike. Yeah. What is it like to be like a lady? I mean, mm. it's not something anybody gets to decide. Um, I think that the way in which she uses all of these different things, like you were asking earlier whether we're supposed to recognise each of them, I think they're supposed to create a situation which the viewer feels is maybe familiar. Mm but also they're not invited to the party. It's kind of this, like you say, she creates this like strange, almost surreal world with mirrors, with glimpses through into spaces that are maybe other people's private spaces. But all the time we're being reminded that um, these women are there for the pleasure of themselves. They're not there for us. Absolutely. But she's also kind of grabbing motifs and figurations as well from different eras. So in that, no bear back after Ember, that I guess that male figure who is also... He's, he looks like he's like wearing a towel or a skirt or something. So again, there's that ambiguity as well. But the woman, the kind of lead woman is a, am I right in thinking she's actually taking from a Nicki Minaj image yeah. as well, which is interesting that she's fusing these sort of high, low cultures or historic presence and everything. Well, I think the way in which Lisa chooses characters or gestures or moods for paintings, it's kind of regardless of specific moments in time or history or um, whatever it doesn't matter where they're drawn from she's drawn to moods and feelings and rather than choosing this Nicki Minaj thing for it being specifically a pop culture reference or any other specific reason what she's actually looking at is this woman using her body to say fuck you this is yeah. this is my body this is what who I choose to be how I choose to be and it's nothing to do with you so she picks these little moments and you know, it's not always that these women are kind of endlessly forlorn or alone or damsels in distress. Sometimes they are women who are owning their own bodies and owning the, the way in which they present themselves. And she brings them all together, maybe to create dialogues between these different characters, bringing them in from different times and places and moods to create a new kind of group of women. And one of the things that's interesting is quite often we were asked when people came into the exhibition, are these brothel scenes? Oh my gosh, I never even thought of that. And which, well, that's good. <laughs> but, <laughs> and I was quite taken aback. But, you know, it's interesting that the number of times that it was asked that women see a group of women dressing or undressing in the absence of men. And for some reason, it has to be that they're all gathered there for the pleasure of men that's happening outside of the frame. And I think that her work forces people to interrogate their own ways of thinking and challenge kind of the unconscious bias that they have that they might not be aware of or might not be willing to admit to, but it kind of 
um, quietly forces you to confront things that you don't necessarily want to think about or that you haven't necessarily noticed. Yeah, that is so interesting actually you say that because also, again, coming back to that idea with the Trinidadian kind of blinds that like shield the doors, yeah. they almost seem like door frames. Yes, the works are kind of like portals into other spaces, other worlds, other climates, histories. But at the same time, they're like physically like a door. Do you think she's kind of playing around with that? Yeah, and I think there's definitely a kind of surreal element to that particular exhibition. Mm. Um, there's one particular painting that she painted on a door, and it is a door. Oh, that wow. She restretched it afterwards, but um, it's the size of a door, and this woman's kind of creeping around it. And like you say, it's this idea of portals and glimpses. I think when she was talking about the Trinidadian curtains and um, the kind of grills and ironwork and things, I think the way she phrased it was thinly veiled interiors to the exterior. Mm. So it's almost like a kind of veiling. It is. Um, sometimes you find that there's a character holding up a sheet. Sometimes it's you know, like you go to the beach with your girlfriends and somebody's holding up the towel so you yeah. can get changed. But it also for me, it reminds me of Cranach paintings yeah. of those little bits of fabric, wispy nighty, that kind of makes the nakedness even more naked. Absolutely. But then these new paintings in the Stephen Freeman Gallery show, there are works on that kind of see-through paper. I mean, can you tell me a bit more about the process behind these kind of things? What is the paints that she's using and what on, on what kind of work to make them have this total translucency because it's as though the sheet of paper is always a substitute for the towel or something. Yeah, and I love these new works where you have this kind of um, tracing paper over the top of another painting. Yeah. There's one in particular where the character... Um, is her back is turned and you can see her bum cheeks and they're rosy yeah and a kind of nod to that valaton painting where the lady's lying down and she's got flushed cheeks oh, wow um and also there's another reference with the rosy bum cheeks to a laura knight self-portrait where she's painting a life model and she's got those kind of soft red cheeks as well as you say that further level of veiling is mm. really interesting but she uses this tracing paper a lot and the smaller blue paintings yes. that are sometimes in gouache are kind of a way of her working through and maybe creating specific characters or elements that then might appear in other paintings mm. there are a whole series of artists female artists yeah. um, like Frida Kahlo and Gluck artists who are female artists thinking about painting women painting women um, and thinking about I think that's a really interesting shift that she's now um, not just taking characters from art history, but taking the, the, the women who might not have, as, as you're doing, calling into um, the fore, the women who were painting as well, but also then taking that a step further and having likened the paintings where they're looking at their reflection. Yeah. It's introspection. So it's a further level of you're not invited to what we're talking about because it's between me and myself. And this is a kind of introspection that leads to discovery and self-knowledge. Mm. And I'm really interested, and maybe you don't know the answer to this because Lisa's not right here, but do you think any are actually self-portraits as well? I think they probably are. Yeah. I wouldn't want to say. I feel like um, you'd have to ask Lisa that. Um, <laughs> but I know she wears a lot of stripes. Yeah. <laughs> and you see lots of stripes in the paintings. But actually, I asked her about that recently. Um, and she said that 
apparently sailors would wear stripes because it was easier to spot a man overboard. Oh. Um, so I think there's also something interesting in that, that it's kind of a man's uniform yes. um, that she's appropriating and using. But I think the whole focus of this new show of the artist as model, mm. the fact that there are so many artists in the work, I think that's that's interesting. But again, that's just my reading. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. But what I love about them as well is they're completely kind of monochromatic and she's using this gold paint. Is it two layers of painting that are on these works? So two layers of tracing paper that are painted on? So there's an under layer and there's a, another layer with kind of a... a I think a separate drawing or separate painting but she quite often uses various different techniques so she might draw or paint onto something and then print that onto a canvas and then fill it in but she uses all different processes yeah absolutely which kind of leads me on to you know what happened in her exhibition in Stephen Freeman was with the screen and what was so powerful I think about those screens was that you got again these repetitive figures who you've seen before in their private spaces yet a screen is obviously, especially that kind of screen is kind of quite boudoir-y, kind of, you know, uh, late. Well, it's there to protect people's modesty. Absolutely. You know, it's funny that she's taking the things that would traditionally be hidden behind it and bringing them to the front. And also, I love the fact that with these screens, like I said, the way that she provides these veiled layers of mm. understanding that you have to kind of get through to get to the core of the work, actually kind of taking it off the wall and making you physically have to interact with the work to see the whole work, to walk around it, the way that you look at it in a more physical way, I think is really interesting. There's another layer of veiling and also the way in which, you know, if you were to hang it on the wall as flat you know, traditional yeah. canvas, you would see them one way. But then when you open it out and, and change the the shape of the screen, those conversations that are happening between different characters, you know, you might miss one character or a character's talking to somebody else again. Then actually when you see them on a screen and it's set up differently, that again, it, it changes the composition to a further degree. Um, the other thing to do with that, going back to the idea of veiling, yeah. is... Um, you see in the paintings as well, and actually some of the more recent ones, sometimes the reflections don't match the um, yes. main figure. Yeah. Um, and there's this kind of further veiling of character or of identity. But the thing I find really interesting, another element of kind of ambiguity to her work is that they using the color blue interrupts an easy reading of ethnicity. Mm. And there is an idea that the blue paint that they use in Trinidad as part of Juve was originally made from something called Reckitt's blue powder which is found throughout the colonies of the British Empire for bluing white cloth, so making your whites really white. Yeah. Um, but it's also associated with skin bleaching, which is really interesting because um, there are issues around shadism, particularly in Trinidadian culture. So I think that, again, that interruption of an easy reading of the colour of somebody's skin through the use of blue paint, um, it's just another level that she's kind of putting up for you to have to negotiate to think about the identity of the characters in the work. Totally, but also then adding to this ambiguity of historical figures mm. as well. So, for example, when she's looking at Millet's Ophelia or something, you know, Millet's Ophelia doesn't have to necessarily be white and actually perhaps commenting on the fact that so much of Western art history is pretty much all of it is white male uh, from a white male gaze or for the pleasure of a white male gaze as well. So in John Millet's um, Ophelia, obviously that work was a sort of direct inspiration of the Tate Britain show. What exactly was she looking at in this particular work? So for the exhibition at Tate Britain, she made 
works in response to Ophelia, one of which was Ophelia, who Lisa had resurrected from her watery grave. Rather than being horizontal in the water drowned, yeah. she's standing up and she's leaning through one of these Trinidadian plastic curtains, holding a stag beer and having a cigarette. Oh, this is, is this the one with the sort of multicolored um, yeah. screen? Oh my God. And with the smoke, it's just fantastic. There's this plume of smoke, yeah. these beautiful plumes of smoke that she has that, again, an, another kind of motif that reappears appear um throughout her work and i'm sure that many people know the story of ophelia but um spoiler alert for those who haven't read that particular story <laughs> um ophelia drowned in yeah. a stream um following the murder of her father by her lover and for the original painting millet's model elizabeth siddle who was an artist in her own right and mm. i think that's another interesting thing with yeah. this kind of progression that Lisa seems to be be making recently looking at again immortalizing these female artists exactly yeah. so for the original painting Elizabeth Siddle posed over the course of four months in a bath filled with water that was kept warm by oil lamps underneath oh the bath my God, I never even knew this and on one of the occasions the lamp went out and she caught a severe cold which her father threatened Millet with legal action over <gasps> So there are all of these stories of the kind of trials and tribulations of what these women went through, even just as unnamed sitters sometimes. And in the original painting, there's lots of symbolic flora all around her, which Lisa was inspired by. And in one of the works in the exhibition called Boundary Girl, yeah. um, and in South Africa, there are these border plants that they use to mark out territory. And there's this red figure. Her name is Boundary Girl. And there she's using this kind of you know the flora of where she's from to mark out territory that this woman is there is her territory she's got this border plant and it's her border but in the original Ophelia they'd painted in uh, or he'd painted in willow nettles and daisies which were for forsaken love pain and innocence pansies <laughs> for love in vain violets for faithfulness chastity and the death of the young oh, and gosh. poppies for death <laughs> So just like a really like fun bouquet of flowers scattered around her. <laughs> <There's> like, <laughs> so you can see that she's kind of taking that flora and instead of using the symbolic flora to kind of create this really sad image of, you know, this woman who's died through this world of men that's mm. treated her so poorly, <laughs> she's owning her own space. She's yeah. got her boundary plant and she's owning the space in which she is. And in the original painting as well, there was um, an image of a rat at the edge of the painting, um, which apparently an assistant had fished out of the Hogsmill River, which is the river where the stream oh was for yeah. the original painting. Um, and it was paddling alongside the drowned Ophelia. <laughs> and in December 1851, Millet showed the um, incomplete painting to a relative of William Holman Hunt. And his uncle and aunt came and he wrote in his diary, Hunt's uncle and aunt came, both of whom understood most gratifyingly every object except my water rat. And by the time he showed the painting at the Royal Academy in 1852, the rat had gone. But apparently there's still a rough sketch of it in an upper corner of the canvas that's concealed by the frame. Wow. And Lisa did a painting that was kind of around the back of the exhibition. Yeah. Um, facing into the collection. 
I um, see, yeah. And she'd repainted the rat and she'd put the rat back into the painting. So she's kind of taking these unsavory elements of art historical stories to, to do with, um, you know, women's stories throughout history and painting them back in. And yeah. I love the fact that Ophelia was looking into the collection and her rat was there and they're looking back into the collection and the rat's back and she's back and she's standing up and she's enjoying herself. Oh my gosh, it's just totally reclaiming history. It's great. Especially, you know, being somewhere like Tate Britain, obviously one of the kind of most iconic but oldest institutions in the country. Actually, you know, what is British art now? Like, what does it mean? And actually, let's take that back and let's change Ophelia. Let's change this iconic piece. And actually, what was the real story? Let's talk about the woman, what she had to go through. Again, unnamed woman, Elizabeth Siddle, one of the kind of greatest pre-Raphaelite artists who we had never learned about at school or anything. And I think it adds to people's understandings you know looking at Lisa's work adds to the viewer's understanding of the canon of art history or even if it's um not to do with understanding specific stories or you know specific tales of uh, what people have done I think that looking at Lisa's work creates a different way of looking at other people's work as well yeah no I love that so where do you kind of think and this is probably quite a hard question but where do you think Lisa kind of fits into our history I think she, like her paintings, refuses to be categorised. Yeah. And I think that refusal to be categorised, I think, is a good way of approaching everything, refusing to think about things in a kind of binary, you know, traditional, boring sense. Actually, to think about things in a more holistic way or to think about things in a fresh way. One of the things that Ember, one of the artists that she was influenced by in, in Trinidad, said to her was invade your own privacy. And I think that's a really useful way to conduct yourself, not just as a painter or as an artist or as a viewer, but I think, you know, more widely. So Lisa, for us, is one of the kind of greatest artists of our generation. I know us two are kind of probably the biggest fans in the world. Um, but how do you think people will look back on her work? Um, that's an interesting question. Can I turn the question around and ask you? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's something that I think about quite a lot with artists uh, working today, especially figurative artists, because I feel like you know someone like Lisa is really playing with the now and I think you know combining Gertrude Stein or Manet or Nicki Minaj I think that's a really interesting kind of collective combination of figures who are kind of like pop icons you know in a way Manet was the pop icon of then or something I think for me she'll be known as really disrupting art history and and almost kind of like silently disrupting art history because I feel that her work is so I guess it's not some pretentious, but it's so like present in a way. And but there is this silence, this mutedness to it. And it's so, even though, you know, the woman has her like bum out or her what out straight in front of us, it's actually not that loud. Yeah, I think I would use the word quietly disruptive. Yeah, I think that, um, as you say, she's kind of planting a seed that given the multi-layered nature of her work, you can't help but go away and think more about it and every time you look at it there's more it's kind of starting something off that then is going to spread its roots and reach further but I think she is encouraging a serious change in the way that people think and doing it very beautifully so I know that you know Lisa very well so I'm not going to ask you what you would say to her but what I would like to ask you if there's something more that you would like to know about Lisa I'd like to know what Ember um 
makes of her work yeah. uh, or would have made of her work and particularly her more recent work I think he would give just as much of a uh, big tick of approval as you and I <laughs> <laughs> both do um, but I think it would be fascinating to find out what what he made um, of her and and to hear stories about her through his eyes absolutely the other dimension yeah. thank you so much Aisha for coming on today's podcast thank you so much for having me Thank you all so much for listening to the seventh episode of the Great Women Artists podcast with the brilliant Aisha Merez. It was so interesting to hear all the different readings of Lisa Bryce's work. And for those in London, I urge you to get down to her solo show at Stephen Freeman Gallery before it closes next Saturday, the 9th of November. This podcast was sound edited by the brilliant Ellie Clifford. And if you have been enjoying this episode so far, I'd be so grateful if you were able to leave a review as it helps others find us. And of course, thank you for listening to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. As you can probably tell, visiting museums is one of my absolute favourite activities. And thanks to the National Art Pass, you can now access free entry to over 240 museums, galleries and historic houses across the UK. Plus 50% off major exhibitions, including the British Museum and the Tate. Membership is just £70 a year, and for those under 30, it's 45 And for lucky Great Women Artists listeners, you can also receive an exclusive tote bag designed by Malika Fev when you buy a National Art Pass by entering the code GREAT at checkout. Thanks to our sponsor, the National Art Pass, for making this podcast possible.